Okay, will you please stand and turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll read verses 1 to 16, and then we'll read Ruth chapter 1 as our sermon text. thought it would be uh, helpful for us to read these instructions from the Apostle Paul to Timothy for the care of um, uh, widows in the church of the Lord Jesus, uh, which is uh, important, very practical instruction for us as believers and as a church, and also can help us to reflect on the kind of character displayed by uh, the widows that we are going to meet in this new book in our sermon series on Ruth. Okay, 1 Timothy 5. Let's pray before we read. Our Father in heaven, uh, as we embark on this new book of the Bible, um, we ask that you would please um, teach us from it, help us to see clearly its message, um, its import for us as the people of God living today as we seek to understand what you were doing in the life of Naomi, Ruth, and their family um, in their own time. Thank you for hearing this prayer, Lord. Guide us tonight um, as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Timothy 5, 1-16. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry. Bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Amen. Now let's go back and read Ruth chapter 1.
Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, She said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned 
and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Amen. You may be seated. When you study literature, uh, theater in particular, one of the things you learn early on is the difference between a comedy and a tragedy. Uh, Of course, when you're comparing comedy and tragedy, in in that case, comedy doesn't mean a funny story. Um, It means more or less a story with a happy ending. Um, And sometimes people will use the shorthand that a tragedy usually ends in a funeral or at least somebody's death, uh, but a comedy usually ends in a wedding. Or maybe a little more precisely, people will say that tragedy is a story that begins in joy but ends in pain, while comedy is a story that begins in pain but ends in joy. And uh, Judges, the book of Judges, as our last several months of hard labor through that book have shown us, uh, Judges is, by, by any of those measures, most definitely a tragedy. Um, the book of Ruth, I'm happy to say, and as I promised last week when we were in the throes of Judges chapter 21, Ruth is the other kind. It's a comedy in that sense of a story with a happy ending that ends more or less with a wedding, in fact. But I'll have to wait a little while to get to that happy ending. And quite true to those uh, kind of broad brushstrokes I just described about the nature of tragedy and the nature of comedy, this comedy, although it does end in joy, it begins in pain. And not just superficial pain, it begins in deep, deep pain um, of, of the sort, as you see in many of the great story, stories of both literature and history, the kind of pain that you simply cannot see at first how this could possibly come out right, how it could possibly have a happy ending, um, how the Lord could possibly, out of this great great evil, bring his great and good purposes to pass. And yet that is exactly what he is going to do. And we do start to get the first glimmers of hope in that direction, those first indications of those great and good purposes of God um, that are going to unfold throughout the book right here in the first chapter. So let's take it in three parts, which we're going to call first a bitter beginning, Verses 1 to 5. Second, a loyal love. Verses 6 to 18. And then third, a hidden hope. Verses 19 to 22. So a bitter beginning, a loyal love, and a hidden hope. I think a good way of getting into verses 1 through 5 is just to ask the question, what's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with this picture? And the answers are many. Many layers to this, and the the tone is set right away when we hear in the days when the judges ruled. What characterized that period, the days when the judges ruled, uh, if we base our uh, assessment of that on the book we just finished, the book of Judges? The answers would be idolatry, ignorance, 
rejection of the law of God, and especially that vacuum of leadership that's summed up in that refrain that ends the book and that appears in other places in those final chapters. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's exactly uh, what you see happening, arguably, with, with Elimelech and his family here. Arguably, Elimelech is an example of someone who's doing what is right in his own eyes when he faces this famine. And now let's talk about that famine. One of the first things you see here is there was a famine in the land. Now, what does famine represent? What does that indicate? Famine indicates that this was not a time of covenant blessing for Israel. Covenant blessing is marked by things like abundance and plenty in in the Old Testament, in in the law of God, for example, in Deuteronomy. Uh, Famine, on the other hand, is is a symptom representing uh, brokenness in Israel's relationship with God. Uh, Daniel Block points out the irony that this famine is impacting the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem literally meaning in Hebrew, house of bread. House of bread is experiencing a famine. Uh, It's not supplying bread to Elimelech's family, so what is he going to do? What he decides to do is to leave the promised land. To leave the promised land. And so effectively, as one writer puts it, Elimelech with his family is going into exile. They're, they're going into exile. You see these, these many elements of covenant curse starting, starting to kind of add up. Um, by going to Moab, Elimelech, of course, so is, is not doing something unprecedented in the history of God's people. He's, he's just doing exactly what other people in the history of the covenant have done before, going back all the way to Abraham, the very beginning of, of this covenant relationship with Israel, from their first father, Abram, Genesis 12. God gives his very first promises to Abram, about, about um, including promises about the, the promised land of Canaan, uh, that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, that's Genesis 12, 3, but then right after that, no sooner has God given those promises than we hear, now, there was a famine in the land, and what did Abram do? So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So Abraham left the land that God had promised him for a different land where he thought, well, maybe I can be better provided for if I go there where the food is. And, of course, he, Abram gets into deep trouble there in Egypt through his faithlessness. Um, so like Abram, in that case, Elimelech here thinks that he and his family will be better off somewhere outside the promised land than in it. Uh, But that's not where the problems end. Not only does Elimelech lead his family out out of the covenantal land, his sons, after his death, end up uh, marrying women from outside the covenantal people. Uh, If you know a little bit about the history of, between Israel and Moab, especially in the book of Numbers. And you may remember that it was through the women of Moab that the people of Israel were led into a very severe idolatry and sexual immorality. This was a major, major instant in Numbers chapter 25, very close to the time when Israel was finally supposed to cross into Canaan 
after their 40 years in the wilderness, and it created really an existential crisis for the nation. For these, these two Israelite young men, Malon and Kilion, to be marrying Moabite women is a big warning flag. What are you thinking, guys? And I'll tell you one thing. They are not thinking in terms of their covenant relationship with God. They're not thinking in terms of their obligations to that covenant relationship. What they're thinking about is survival from starvation, and then they're just looking for wives to marry and settle down with. They just are, are wanting to live a pleasant, comfortable, decent life. And they, that's what they think that they have found in Moab. Uh, both of those are good desires. Survival, that's a good desire. Uh, wife to marry and settle down with, that's a good desire. But see, they're seeking those things outside the covenantal framework, disconnected from their covenantal identity that's given to them by God as part of the covenant people, the holy people of God living in the holy land of God. And so because uh, they've thought about these things disconnected from that covenant identity, their desires then have led them pretty far at this point from the covenant land and from the covenant people. And things just keep going from bad to worse then because not only does Elimelech die, but then Malon and Kilion die too, leaving behind three childless and husbandless women. The Israelite Naomi, and then these two younger Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Notice that, furthermore, that Malon and Kilion lived in Moab for 10 years, but during all that time, their wives didn't bear them any children. It's kind of unusual. And once again, it's, an, it's yet another symbol. You see all of these layers, one after the other, all these different aspects of the way that the Bible describes what it looks like to be not experiencing covenant blessing, the blessings of covenant obedience. Instead, this family is experiencing one thing after another, representing um, what the whole land of Israel is experiencing there in the time of the judges, the consequences of covenantal brokenness, covenant curse. And so this is indeed a bitter beginning, a a story that begins in pain, as we said earlier, a pain of many different kinds and all quite excruciating kinds. Um, And so in some ways, I think the beginning of Ruth, um, especially when we think about Naomi, should should remind us a little bit of the beginning of Job. Really, it's just blow after blow, relentlessly falling on Job as, as everything he had in every part of his life. Everything that once brought him joy and prosperity was stripped away from him. And now look at Naomi. There's famine, there's exile, there's barrenness, there's the grief of death and widowhood three times over. And, and any one of those factors would have been a terrible burden all by itself, but put them all together. And it's not so hard to understand why Naomi, whose name means pleasant, later on wants to change her name, so don't call me that. Call me Mara, which means bitter. 
bitter. That is her name from her point of view. So this is a story that begins in pain, but of course, remember, it doesn't end there. And already in the middle section of this chapter, you start to get that glimmer of hope. There's a reason that things are going to change. And that glimmer of hope revolves around um, that Hebrew word that I keep talking about at different times. I've mentioned it many times before. It's the word chesed. I really try. I really try not to talk about Hebrew words very often, Um, mostly because it usually doesn't add all that much, because the English translations are pretty good at just showing you what the original language means. That's why we have good, careful English translations, and and usually the meaning gets through very well. So I never never want to give you the impression that the Bible... Um, or the, the quote-unquote real meaning of the Bible is somehow inaccessible to you. that You can't really get it without expert help or unless you know Greek and Hebrew. That's not, it's just not the case. But there can be some value in learning this, this kind of small handful of, of very significant words, particularly significant words, especially when one Hebrew word gets translated by many different English words. So you can't always tell that it's the same word that's being used. And it can help to just give us a little more insight to see where the same Hebrew word lies behind these different English words. And it's one of the reasons I keep bringing up this one in particular, chesed. Remember uh, from other sermons that it means covenantal faithfulness. It means loyalty and love kind of coming together um, in a both formal and personal structure of promises and obligations and consequences for when you violate it. And um, more often than not, I think, when you come across verses with this word chesed, in, um, in the ESV translation at least, what you find is the phrase steadfast love. Steadfast love. Um, that's especially in the Psalms. You see that all the time. Steadfast love. Uh, but there are other words that are used to translate it too in other places, including what you see there in verse 8 where it says, deal kindly. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Naomi is is blessing her daughters-in-law here by saying, may the Lord do chesed towards you. May, May he show you steadfast love and loyalty and faithfulness. Why? Well, because of the way that you have shown chesed to me and to the men of our family who have now died. Okay? Now, to some degree, um, both Ruth and Orpah have already shown Naomi this, this loyalty, this kindness. Uh, that's what Naomi is saying. This is before um, they decide to go home or, or stay with her. Uh, Naomi's intention is to bless them and send them on their way back to Moab. But in what happens next, as it turns out, there comes to be a great distinction between those two younger women Orpah Orpa is not explicitly faulted for going back to Moab when she's given that opportunity. Um, but Ruth, on the other hand, takes her commitment to, to Naomi, her loyalty, her, her chesed uh, commitment to a completely different level. And um, again, while... The text does not go out of its way to rebuke Orpah, although it does mention that she's going back not only to her family, but to her gods. So there's a great 
difference in covenantal outcome for these, for these two women, the people that they live among and the gods that they end up serving. And so there is, there is a reason then that, for example, the title of the sermon, I've called it A Tale of, of Two Widows. So of course, it starts out as a tale of three, but it becomes a tale of, of just two. Because at this point, Orpah leaves the story, and she's no longer part of that salvation history that God is writing in the lives of these women. And this decision Ruth makes makes a tremendous difference. And it's at this moment in the history that, that our perception of Ruth primarily as a Moabite woman, a Moabitess, starts to change. See, as, as part of that bigger kind of class or group of Moabite women, that starts out making Ruth seem very suspect in the context of like the Book of Numbers, earlier, earlier history between these two people groups. Nothing good has ever come of Israelites getting involved with Moabite women. It is always a disaster. But what is different about Ruth? What is different about Ruth? And here it is. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. The Moabites aren't going to be Ruth's people anymore. Ruth's people are going to be Naomi's people. That's the people of Israel. Your God is going to be my God. The gods of Moab are not going to be Ruth's God anymore. Ruth's God is going to be the God of Naomi, which is the God of Israel which is the Lord. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me also. There she even uses that covenant name of God, herself taking it on her own lips. May the Lord do so to me also, if anything but death parts me from you. Does that sound to you like something your typical Moabite would say? No, it doesn't. What does it sound like? It sounds like something a faithful Israelite would say. Not your typical Israelite either, at least not in the time of the judges. These are words of covenantal faithfulness, not only to Naomi, but to the Lord. The Moabites were idolaters. They worshipped false gods. For that matter, so were the Israelites, and so did the Israelites for so much of this period of history as a nation. But see, Ruth here is vowing her loyalty and love, not just to Naomi, but to Naomi's God. Even swearing to this by that special covenant name of the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson, he writes about this, goes so far to describe this as Ruth's conversion. Ruth's conversion. certainly bears some of the marks of conversion as Ruth is turning away from one way of life and embracing another. She's turning away from the old pantheon of God's and embracing this one true God instead. She's, she's distancing herself, separating herself really from Moab as a nation, as a cultural and religious community. And she's attaching herself. She's aligning herself. She's committing herself to the covenant community of Israel and Israel's uh, covenant God. It's almost as though Ruth is, in a sense, becoming an Israelite here. In, in a way... That's really quite analogous to what we mean when we talk about someone becoming a Christian. Right? Throwing in your lot, your whole life, with this Christ and this community of Christ's people. 
Ruth doesn't want to go where her extended family lives to, to a place where she could maybe get a nice uh, second Moabite husband. She wants to be with Naomi. She's showing to Naomi chesed, and that chesed toward Naomi is already being shown as parallel with the chesed steadfast love of God, which he, whether Naomi recognized it or not, which the Lord has already been showing to Naomi over the past 10 years, which is just the beginning of what he has prepared to show her this year. I say whether she recognizes it, or rec- whether Naomi recognizes it or not. That's because at the end of the chapter, it, it's it's clear that Naomi is in a very dark place, in terms of the way she is seeing and experiencing her life circumstances at this point. Um, Naomi, frankly, is she is overwhelmed by her sorrow and her loss, perhaps perhaps by guilt, certainly by shame. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Because the Lord, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? You hear that? The Lord has testified against me. Apparently, Naomi is saying, uh, apparently, I'm suffering under the consequences of covenantal curse. That's Naomi's interpretation of all these burdens in her life. Where has all this calamity come from? Well, it's come from the sovereign hand of the covenant God of Israel. I, I really appreciated one writer on this chapter who, who warned against um, the approach that comes down really hard on Naomi at this point, like her lack of faith or something more or less just for her lack of optimism. <laughs> um, or, or, or says, you know, bad Naomi, she's complaining, she's not trusting enough, she's ungrateful, things like that. Naomi sometimes may get blamed for certain interpretations. I, <clears throat> I don't think that we're given this window into Naomi's great uh, despondency so that we can all um, identify how bad she is for speaking this way about her life. no. I think that overwhelmingly the author's point here is for us to be moved to compassion um, and, and care for this woman who is, who is in the very extremities of grief and loss and destitution. And, and then to see in her a mirror for our own suffering of various kinds. Not for us to wag, wag fingers at her, but for us to understand that at this point in the story, at this point in her life, as she was experiencing it, Naomi, unlike us, didn't know the end of the story yet. Um, what she can see and experience right now um, as the sad ending of her story, she, 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 she sees this as the end of the long tale of going to Moab and coming back. From Naomi's point of view, this is the end of the story. You know, I went away full and now I've come back empty. The end. And now the rest of my life is ruined. And so I'm just bitter. But of course, this is Ruth chapter 1. From the Lord's point of view, it's the beginning of something, right? Even though 
to Naomi, it seems like the end of something. Um, and maybe we can draw some insight, um, as commentator Lawson Younger does, about, um, about how people can be tempted to think when they're in the midst of terrible suffering. Uh, we can reflect, okay, when we are in the midst of terrible suffering, what might be some of the pitfalls? What, what might be some of the things that we need to look out for, uh, such as uh, he, what he describes as a, a self-absorption or a tendency to, to kind of cave in under those pressures of life, to, to indulge kind of in a, in a self-pity when, when our suffering becomes so big and so close to our field of vision that it's all that we can see anymore. And so from our point of view, it's, that's all there is, is just the suffering because it's clouded our vision. We can't see beyond it. And, and sometimes, sometimes we can forget also that we're not the only sufferers in the world. Um, and think, start to, you know, it's, it's one of many ways that we can adopt a self-centered attitude. We are always adopting a self-centered attitude in good times and bad times. Um, and, of course, when we get into that self-pity mode, the other thing we're likely to miss in that is the goodness of God. The goodness of God that's working in the midst of our circumstances to bring about a good that is greater than the present pain of our daily life. Um, and so those are, those are some things maybe we can observe and think about as, as warnings for us or, or just instruction for us as we can, as Lord's giving us the opportunity to see a perspective, a, a, a point of view on Naomi's suffering that she couldn't see. And, and in that, he's teaching us, well, watch out. When, that's all you, what, when, when all you can see is the blackness, don't forget that what you can see isn't all there is. What you're feeling right now isn't all you will ever feel or all that's true or all that's real. I love the sort of indirect storytelling in the last verse of the chapter. When it says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Um, And Sinclair Ferguson points out that this chapter begins with a famine and ends with a harvest. And that's, not an, that's not an accident. That's a very careful, artistic, literary way of, of telling this history. It's signaling to us that famine is over, the harvest has begun. There, there's a hopefulness, there's an expectancy in that. There's, there's a sense that the time of waiting and growing is over, that, that, that this is what we've been waiting for. And, and while the Lord has indeed taken away for a time, the Lord is about to give now. If Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. In the case of Naomi, we could say, the Lord has taken away and now the Lord is about to give. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Something that he's been preparing, um, but so far... Naomi and Ruth have no idea what's coming. As much as the great sorrows and griefs of life can take us by surprise, so can some of the great blessings of God's plan, which are also hidden from us when we're in the midst of the suffering. I think that 
um, that can be the, the first of a number of practical lessons we could reflect on in light of this chapter. I want to encourage you, whatever you may be suffering with in your life, um, now or maybe in the future, uh, store this away in your heart for another occasion. Uh, just remember that in, until the moment of your death, until the moment of your death, you are living very much in the middle of God's plan for your life, not at the end of it. You should not ever presume to say that your suffering is the end of your story, as Naomi seemed to see her suffering as the end of her story. Naomi is thinking of her widowhood and her bereavement as the end of something, but the narrator is giving us a signal here at the end of chapter 1 that she is not correct about that, that she is not seeing all there is out there, that the Lord has stored up for Naomi a plan of restoration and renewal and joy. But it's also very honest about the fact that in the midst of the pain, um, that that is so hard for her to, to visualize, as it may be for us, right? Um, we're being called to remember here what we're being shown that may not come naturally to us, that we may not naturally be able to see, is that when we are in the middle of the story that God is writing for our lives, the end may not be clear. And that middle part that we're living through may be quite painful, but we have to remember that the Lord has not given us to know generally uh, beforehand how he will bring good out of evil in our lives. But he has promised that he will. We can trust that he will. He will bring good. And this is something else that Younger points out, I think really insightfully, that God will bring good. And this is so important. God will bring good even out of the evil in your life that is the result of your own bad choices. That is how deep and great the grace of God is. See, God works here, um, as Younger again points out, even through and in spite of uh, Elimelech's bad choice to go to Moab. Leaving the promised land, going and living among this foreign people, everything. When Elimelech was making those unsound choices about where to lead his family, what was the Lord doing? Elimelech was doing what was right in his own eyes. But even then, the Lord was preparing the way for Ruth to enter the life of this family. Ruth, who would become in God's providence, by God's design, Naomi's great support, who would become... More than that, who would become the wife of Boaz? And by becoming the wife of Boaz, she would become the ancestor of Israel's greatest king, David, and of David's greater son, the king of kings. And all of that was happening in God's providential overseeing care in the midst of Elimelech's tragic choice to leave the promised land and go to Moab. And... As the same writer points out, that, that doesn't take away here from Naomi's pain, right? You know, just the fact that God is bringing good out of evil doesn't make it hurt less. <laughs> it doesn't take away from her pain. This all really hurt. This was real pain, real tragedy. The happy ending of salvation history does not erase your present pain. It does not, the Lord is not looking at you and saying, well, the pain is just an illusion, like in Buddhism or something. You just imagine it away. It just... 
Um, it's, it doesn't treat the pain as, as an illusion or as insignificant. What it does, it's really the opposite. What it does is the, the happy ending of salvation history gives your suffering meaning in the present. And it not only gives it meaning, it, but, but it also gives you hope in the midst of it. Hope that something better is coming by the grace of God in his perfect sovereign plan for you and for his covenant and for his plan of salvation and for his people. And all of this we can see come to fruition um, so clearly in the life of the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, not only because of the things we can see on the surface here of him being born, as descendant of Ruth and Boaz in, in this same town of Bethlehem, uh, all of those many generations later. But it's more than that, because in the life of Jesus, you can see these same themes being lived out again. And in their fullness, you can see the Lord so clearly working through sorrow and pain and weakness to accomplish his good and saving purposes in life and ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Purposes that would not have been accomplished in any other way by some other path of less resistance that Jesus might have taken. The Lord Jesus was what? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The Lord Jesus was a man who went through life stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. That's the Lord Jesus. That was what his life was like. That's what his death was like. But his heavenly father gave to him as he gave to Naomi before him a bitter cup to drink. But as he drank that bitter cup, the Lord Jesus knew that the sufferings and the deprivations of his life and the scorn and mockery of his trial and all the many other humiliations of his earthly life and his death, that those were not the end of his story. They were the middle of his story. And he knew that through those things, and especially through uh, his that uh, that through his suffering, a great salvation was being accomplished for all of his people. That was the great uh, culmination of this history we're working through in the Old Testament now. See what Jesus was doing as he endured that suffering with that understanding, with that hope. You know what he was doing for you? He was showing you. He was showing you. Chesed. He was showing you that loyalty and love, steadfast love, that covenantal faithfulness that the Lord has always shown to his people and that he worked in Ruth's life to show to Naomi as she committed herself to her mother-in-law and to her mother-in-law's God. It is that steadfast love, that loyalty, that faithfulness that the Lord Jesus was showing to you in his suffering and death. Because of his commitment to his covenant promises. And so now, as we're walking through life uh, with one another and with him, you think, what is it then that he's calling us to? As we follow him, in that triumphal procession, like we heard about this morning. What is to characterize us? What are we being called to? I think the answer is he is calling us to chesed. 
He's calling us to that loyalty and love, both towards Him and towards one another. Toward the person sitting beside you and towards that person's God. Who's your God too. That loyalty and love that's exemplified in Ruth's commitment towards Naomi, but even more so in Christ's commitment to his heavenly Father and to his people. He's calling us that we would willingly devote ourselves to him and to one another, unreservedly and permanently. We do that together as a community, um, that we would, as we devote ourselves to each other, that we would bear one another's burdens, that we would stick close to each other, as Ruth sticks close to Naomi, and that love and care and service and, and affection and compassion. Uh, knowing that this is one of the primary ways that he has appointed, it, it's one of the mean, the primary means that he has planned to use to show his chesed to, it, to us. It's through each other. We are God's instruments by which he shows his covenantal care for us as we show covenantal care for each other. It's the means that God has planned to use to get us through from the middle of our stories that we're living through now to that perfect end that he has in mind. He's not only ordained that great end, he's ordained the means. And what's the means? It's each other. It's us. We're to do this for each other by God's grace. It's through each other, showing that chesed love and loyalty to one another. Because of our shared chesed love and loyalty towards Jesus, because of his chesed love and loyalty towards each and all of us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, so thankful for the story of Ruth, and Lord, even as this history begins in such deep pain, thank you that that itself already begins to give us hope. That when it is darkest, you are at work, and you are preparing the great dawn that you have promised. So, Lord, we pray that you would make us part of that great work that you are doing to show your loyalty and love to your people um, as we recommit ourselves to our loyalty and love to you and to each other in Christ, our great loyal and loving Savior. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.